Hey, Real Talkers, who can even afford to live anymore? Like groceries are up, utilities are up, insurance is up, mortgages are up, rents are up, tuition's up. What's not up? Disposable incomes, for one. This episode of Real Talk is dedicated to finding solutions for Canadians just barely getting by. This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. You're feeling the pinch. You're feeling it stronger now more than ever before. You've always been prudent. You've always been fiscally responsible. You've always been willing to throw maybe a little bit here on the credit card. Here and there, your friends are going out. You want to fit in a last-minute trip. But for the most part, you've kept your finances on the rails because it matters because there's people that are counting on you whether it's your kids your spouse or your partner maybe it's your parents maybe you remember that sandwich generation that's helping out those that raised you and those you're raising at the same time but something's different now right you feel it groceries are costing more your car insurance is costing more the interest rate on your mortgage and maybe your lines of credit is costing you more And you're wondering how you're going to make it. You're not getting a raise at work that's matched inflation because very few people are getting 7 or 9 or 11% raises. And you're wondering what to do about it. This Real Talk Roundtable, this episode of the show is for you. We're going to talk to three experts in the space. As a matter of fact, they've just joined a team known as the Action, the Affordability Action Council. And we're going to talk about this from different angles. We'll talk about energy affordability. We're going to talk about people trying to stretch dollars and how Canadians are making it. We'll talk about maybe some individual changes that need to be made, but we're talking higher level today. Policy changes. And we're grateful to have you here for part of this conversation. We want to let you know that this episode of Real Talk is presented by our friends at Rello. And we've got a quick message for those of you that are thinking about starting a new career. As a matter of fact, maybe you're dreaming about a new career. You've been thinking about this for a while, being your own boss, running a thriving business and leaving cubicle life behind for good. If you want all of that, plus unlimited earning potential, a career in real estate might be your perfect match. You can get started today by enrolling with Rello. That's R-E-L-O. Rello's Alberta's top real estate school, and they want to support you every step of the way from studying for your exam to getting your license and even beyond that. Plus, with Rello, you're studying 100% online, which means it's always going to work with your schedule. And here's the best part right now. Because you heard about this on Real Talk, you can take 20% off any Rello course with the promo code REALTALK. That's all one word, REALTALK, 20% off when you get started today at Rello.ca. If you're one of those folks that pays attention to basically everything that's happening across the country, you're what we would call an engaged Canadian. You're probably familiar with the IRPP, the Institute for Research on Public Policy. Well, just a short time ago, a few days ago, they rolled out their Affordability Action Council. Uh, Members, professionals, academics, people working in industry from across the country who have earned the right to sit around the table where important conversations are happening around affordability for everyday Canadians. 
We welcome three of them today to our Real Talk Roundtable. Dr. Brendan Haley is Director of Policy Research at Efficiency Canada. That's an energy efficiency policy think tank. He's an adjunct professor as well at public in pu- public policy, rather at Carleton University. Yasmin Abraham is co-founder of Cambo Energy Group and the visionary behind Empower Me, which is Canada's only energy and climate-focused program designed for and delivered by members of underserved communities. Yasmin is a leading expert in equity-based energy and climate programming, uh, working with governments and utilities across the country to design and deliver inclusive inclusive solutions. And Sharice Berta is executive director of city building research and innovation at Toronto Metropolitan University, where she works on policy to make cities more livable, more affordable, and more sustainable. Uh, Before she was at Toronto Metropolitan University, TMU, her past gigs have included the Ontario director of the Pembina Institute and program director with the David Suzuki Foundation. A warm welcome to the three of you, and thank you so much for joining us. Yasmin, you've got a smile so bright. It's just reflecting Uh, sunshine on our entire audience. We love it. I'm just so excited to be here today, Ryan. I love that intro. You great job well listen this is something that caught our attention we're grateful that that all three of you have have agreed to join us essentially on short order this announcement was just made um and i want to give credit uh to some real talk audience members uh including claire kratz who said you need to have this group on the show you need to have this conversation around the real talk roundtable so yasmin why don't we start with you we established this in the intro affordability probably i mean political pundits say if we were to see a snap election right now, if there was a federal election right now, affordability would be the number one thing that everybody would th- would be thinking about. Do you agree? I totally agree. I think affordability and climate change really is top of mind for everybody right now. I think what we're seeing, um, and Brendan Sharice, uh, you know, weigh in, but what we're seeing on the ground is that Affordability issues are hitting so many people right now, so many more people than before. It used to be uh, much more of a minority, but the costs of energy, you know, we know in Alberta, those energy bills are are through the roof. Um, housing is through is unaffordable. Um, as you said, you know, income is not increasing at the same rate. And so people are really struggling. People are really having to make some tough choices when it comes to their lives and what they're what they're um what they're paying for we see a lot of folks you know with with high energy bills having to make tough choices around you know not heating certain rooms so turning off their thermostat so that some rooms are cold um not being able to pay for groceries food insecurity um you know the the issues around affordability are really intersectional, whether it's housing, whether it's climate, whether it's transportation, whether it's food, all of these pieces work together when it comes to somebody's daily life. Yeah. I mean, you touch on housing there, Sharice. I mean, and that, that's obviously probably fr- from your perspective in your wheelhouse, huge when you're talking about making cities more affordable. There's a lot of people right now that have quite frankly given up on home ownership. They're just trying to figure out how they're going to make rent. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, both Brendan and I are working on different parts of kind of trying to solve, multi-solve for housing, because it's not just the housing cost, it's the energy cost, it's um, transportation. I mean, if you end up having to live far away from where you work, any savings in your shelter get, you know, chewed up by 
transportation costs, whether, you know, you can't take transit and you have to drive. And then obviously there's food. But what's wrapped around it all really is climate. And we're seeing that, you know, climate change is very top of mind. But really what's kind of in the front window for most people is affordability. And there shouldn't have to be a trade-off. You know, we often hear that we can't address climate change because, um, because housing and affordability is such a strong issue. But they're actually not incompatible. So the types of things that the Affordability Action Council is working on. We're working at the intersection of food, energy, um, housing, and, and climate, of course. Um, and um, what's the fourth one? Oh, transit, sorry, transportation. So um, so, so some of the things that we're working on that, that we can talk about, because I know we have a long time, we have like an hour to talk about all this stuff. Which we is got great. all the time we need, my friends. <laughs> so we can talk about how you can address some of these affordability challenges, but they actually have these kind of like sort of, you know, in the background, um, um, important impacts on meeting our climate goals. Because if you reduce energy costs, you're um, striving towards our climate goals, the same with um, transportation and putting housing in the right places. Um, I want to encourage all of you along the lines, if we do have the hours, please, please feel free to jump in one another, build on what each other's saying, interrupt me. Let's just treat it like we're out for coffees or uh, you guys are in Eastern time zones. Treat it like we're out, we're out for early beers. We're out for lunch beers. We're out for Caesars like right it. now. Yeah. So, so but, but Brent, you, no, go ahead. Yes. I I'm just going to add to what Cherie said, her example of reducing energy in a home. And I, that's a really a really great one that, you know, we often just think of that, whether it's energy efficiency or LED light bulbs, but if we tackle the cons energy consumption of a home in a holistic way, so thinking about insulation and windows and air sealing, and really look at what that home needs, not only do we reduce the energy bills of that home, we also reduce the greenhouse gas impact of that home. We also increase the, uh, improve the structure of that home, so make it more durable, so the folks that are living in there more comfortable, more safe, they're, they're warmer. They're, so, And all of those things have an impact on health, on mental health and physical health. And so solutions to these issues have multi-solving impact. So you're not only improving the home and the person who lives in that home has a better life, but the way you deliver those solutions can also multi-solve impact. So we can hire people from these underserved communities at you know great wages, great salaries to deliver these types of programs. We can build capacity in communities that are, have been traditionally underserved to actually do this work. So there are ways to create multi-solving solutions. I think what we need to do and what the Affordability Action Council is recommending is that we get out of this narrow siloing of creating solutions just for transport, just for food, just for housing, because these things intersect each other and the solutions can offer multiple benefits. Brendan, people like the general population, maybe us included though, are being led to believe that we have to choose 
between important initiatives, right? Like, like I see it all the time when members of the public, particularly on platform, you know, social media will, will chirp at politicians. The politicians may say something like, you know, here in our hometown of Edmonton, they've finally just opened a billion plus dollar transit line, the Valley line, the LRT, and everybody's really excited about this. But, but politicians will, will celebrate this and someone will say, why don't you focus on the fact that people can't meet their monthly bills? Or we'll talk about things like Alberta's transition, you know, getting that grid to net zero, the electricity grid to net zero by 2035, like the feds want. The Alberta government says no way. And people in their corner, so to speak, cheering for Alberta against the feds will say, what, what an obtuse move. What, what is federal minister Gilbo thinking of? We can't afford housing, right? What's he talking about taking us off natural gas by 2035? Talk about a pie in the sky, ivory tower type perspective, right? I mean, the language is supercharged. Can the two work together? I think they have to. And, you know, like a, a climate is the big existential problem we have. Um, but we can't solve a big problem like that unless we also meet people's basic needs for economic security, equity, affordability. So we need to find a way to you know, when we enhance affordability and we enhance economic security, are we also accelerating, you know, greenhouse gas emissions? That's that's what we need. And I think, you know, I've worked in the environmental policy area for a long time. And, and often that affordability component or economic security component is is seen as almost like a nice to have or an add-on. And it's not. It's it's a prerequisite, right, to tackling some of these bigger um longer term problems. And, you know, I think I think climate policy has been a little bit guilty of being very technocratic, being very like, hey, the solution is, you know, carbon pricing or, or, or this regulation or that regulation um, instead of, you know, something that's very real. So I've been very active since, you know, a, a federal announcement last week where, where, you know, a lot of carbon taxes again in the news. But what's also in the news is heat pumps, and people are really interested in heat pumps and, and larger energy efficiency solutions. And I think those are quite tangible things that kind of, it makes sense to people that that's something you can actually do. And 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 I would, one of the encouragement is, is to focus policy on those more tangible, concrete things that people can understand could actually help them in their homes. What's, what's Brandon, then we, we need to make sure that at cocktail parties, not only are we talking about our renovations and the costs of our homes and the cost of real estate, we're also talking about heat pumps. <laughs> we can make that an exciting topic. But just to pile on what Brendan was saying is um, in terms of like my past history working, I've always worked on policy, but I spent like a decade working on climate and environmental policy. And then I've spent at least a decade working on housing and affordable housing and housing throughout the housing spectrum, everything from affordable housing to real estate prices. And I have found that my Rolodexes for both of these files don't know each other, right? Like there's a real big disconnect in um, these two areas. And one of the things I'm really excited about is now people are talking about both. And this Affordability Action Council is such a great platform. And it's been in place, like we've been having our discussions, um, I guess, since May of this year. And it's going to be a year-long initiative. Um, and we're rolling out 
a series of policy briefs and recommendations. And the ones that we rolled out this week, I guess, was it this week? Yep. Uh, yep. It's a long week. Um, it, <laughs> it, it, we're housing, housing recommendations, which um, address um, kind of retrofitting existing housing, but also how do we build new housing that um, kind of checks the boxes for affordability and sustainability. And then further down the road, we are rolling out recommendations on food and recommendations on transportation. I want to get into all of those uh, with you, but I want to circle back for a second on on the carbon tax story, because obviously, you know, people feel differently about recent developments there in the news, right? Like you, you've got a whole bunch of Western premiers that are that are quite frankly always pissed off at Ottawa, but now they're like really pissed off at Ottawa because of the break that Atlantic Canadians are getting and, and Western Canadians aren't seeing that break on the carbon tax. In particular in Alberta, there's been a lot of talk about a, a government initiative that the provincial government wants to see farmers given a break on carbon tax for things like grain drying and and heating their barns. And, and it's hard to argue against that. Is it unfair for me or, or sensational for me to invoke the word like is there discrimination right now I, I, when it comes to the application of, of climate policy in particular taxes Brendan what do you think is that a fair question well I think I'm I'm actually in Nova Scotia right now and I'm from Nova Scotia and and you know people who heat with fuel oil um, have a, are, are potentially going to have a very difficult winter um, but I also think most people know that, you know, even you take the carbon tax off, that's not going to solve people's problems. It right. is still not what is driving some of the unaffordability problems on on people's bills. And and so, you know, we we want to know what what we can do. And and again, you know, uh, heat pumps are incredibly popular here. Energy efficiency is incredibly popular, but. Uh, to pay for those things, to make those adjustments in your home, to kind of protect yourself from any price increase. Um, you can do it through energy efficiency, but that's not accessible for people who have low to moderate incomes. Um, and the other move that was made alongside that announcement was the federal government finally recognizing that, oh, people can't afford the upfront cost for things like a heat pump or insulation to help get off of oil. So let's remove that upfront cost. Um, but unfortunately, they've only done that for fuel oil. So actually, for if you're low to moderate income and you heat with electricity or natural gas, um, you still aren't getting any help from the federal government. Um, so that is something we can fix. And that is something that a lot of provincial governments could actually co-fund with the with the federal government. Um, so instead of, uh, you know, they can argue, they can, they can complain about the carbon tax, but one thing that a lot of provincial premiers could actually do right now is they could co-fund with the federal government on that fuel oil program they announced, and then they could say, hey, let's extend this to everybody who has unaffordable bills. Generally speaking, how would, like, maybe Yasmin, we'll go to you. How, how would you assess we, we like, I mean, the question, I, I can't ask it too broadly because when we say governments, are we talking the federal government? Like Brendan said, are we talking about the provinces? Even in some cases, municipalities, right? Like we see, like, for example, solar rebates or sustainability rebates that, that municipalities will offer. So maybe the question's too broad, but do you get the sense, generally speaking, that governments or elected officials even understand? I mean, are, are too many of these conversations happening around big oak tables, caucus meetings, cabinet meetings? 
meetings with people that have never gone hungry a day in their life? Um, I think there's definitely a nugget of truth in there, Ryan, for sure. Um, and I think that's really where the Affordability Action Council comes. The group that we that is part of this council has the experience on the ground. Our group has worked in hundreds of thousands of homes, walked into those homes, crawled through crawl spaces, talked to people. We have that understanding. And but I think it de- it's the old it depends answer. One of the, the highlights that I think in the country right now is with the city of Calgary and city of Edmonton right here in Alberta. Um, they have supported the Home Upgrades Program, which is the country's only program specifically designed by the community to provide fully subsidized home upgrades to lower income households across Edmonton and Calgary. And what that does is it allows those lower income households who are unable to take advantage of those programs, as Brendan mentioned, you know, there's a lot of really important and great programs out there, Greener Homes Grant, Greener Homes Loan, but if you're lower income, you don't have that upfront $10,000 to just put up for a heat pump or just put up for windows. You cannot access it. And a loan is also not the best financial solution for somebody who's already struggling to make ends meet at the end of that month. So the, the this home upgrades program, www.homeupgradesprogram.ca, fills that gap for lower income households in Calgary and Edmonton. And thanks to the leadership of those two cities, of those two governments who really understand that this is a gap and the types of solutions that are needed, that gap is being filled in those two cities. Now, you know, obviously the the issue of unaffordability and energy bills and um, housing is beyond just those two cities. But it's a really great example of a community-focused program that's supported by multiple stakeholders that could scale out. You know, it really just needs some rocket fuel um, around funding to expand across across the province. Sharice, we've got a, a comment here. Our live chat is just banging right now, which is awesome. The three of you are lighting a fire under them, which is, is great to see. And, and I want to get to as many of their comments as I can. The most recurring comment this morning is, eat the rich for what it's worth. So maybe we could talk about tax policy in a, in a little bit. Justin's, I wish Yasmin, people could see your face. The eye, the, the eyebrows there just uh, hit your hairline. But, but Justin said, as long as we have billionaires on the planet, something's wrong. There shouldn't be billionaires. Uh, but MA, uh, and I wanted to put this in front of you, Sharice, MA in the chat says, how does one improve the efficiency of their home when right now they can't afford food or utilities? And that's a recurring and fair question. People can't spend $40,000 on new windows or $16,000 on solar panels if they're eating craft dinner every third meal. You know what I mean? Yeah, I might throw this question to Brendan because this is his, mm. like, he gets up in the morning to solve these problems. But I would say that one of the things we also need to talk about across the country is renters. So renters um, have a double challenge of you know, having to choose between paying their rent, paying their energy bills, food, transportation, et cetera. Um, but they don't have any control over um, making retrofits to improve their energy bills. That's kind of in the purview of the landlord. So one of the things that we need to talk about, and I will throw this to Brendan, is um, the fact that renter households are growing twice as fast in Canada. Um, as ownership households. And so we need to start thinking about renters as like an important part of the population because they are. Um, They're becoming quite a dominant part of the population. And so 
a lot of our investments and you know subsidies and programs need to go towards um, supporting landlords to make these upgrades that have benefits for both the landlord's costs and the tenant's costs without getting into this whole problem of, oh, well, if we've made these upgrades, we're going to have to renovate because um, you know our costs, we, we have to pay off these costs, so we need to charge higher rent. So how do we go about doing those upgrades without the um, outcome being people evicted and having to pay higher rent? Brendan, do you want to jump in? I can, Ryan, if you want. I mean, and too, oh yeah, you guys, you guys th- throw the conch around. That's cool with me. Sure. Well, well, to your original question, and, and Yasmin's the one who really works on the ground. I'm a policy wonk, but you know, we know that um, there's almost a hierarchy in which people pay their bills, essentially, right? I mean, people pay their mortgages or their rents before anything else, and and uh, and then a lot of people will pay their energy bills. Um, before perhaps they they spend adequate money on on food, right? So um, because if you don't pay your energy bill, there's there's issues with arrearage and things like that. So we know that when we help people save money by using less energy and becoming more energy efficient, um, they uh, you know people will spend money on things like food or prescription drugs. That they might not be taking, right? So, so you, you know, we know that um, the way people need to make decisions and not get into you know trouble, essentially, that um, when we help people save energy, we actually free up that money to be used for much better purposes. Um, on on renters, I mean, renters really experience energy inefficiency or, or you know high energy costs in a lot of ways. It can be through their rent, it can be higher rents, it can be through bills if they pay them directly, but also inadequate services like access to air conditioning and cool temperatures during extreme heat events is mm-hmm. really really um, important. And and we can solve that through better building performance and energy efficiency. Um, but often, yeah, uh, you know, we'll hear some people say, well, if we make the housing too good, then the rents will increase or people will get rent evicted. And that I think is, is not a good trade-off. We should solve that. And so we've done some, some thinking on how do we not let that trade-off, you know, happen. And, and what they have done in the United States for a long time is, um, if, if, especially if you're a low income renter, there is some upgrades that are fully paid. But in but uh, a landlord having the benefit of those upgrades has to sign something called an affordability covenant, where essentially it's a contract between the tenant, the, the program administrator and the landlord to maintain rents on an affordable level and make sure tenant rights are, are protected. So if we can do that, it's almost a way to actually um, maintain the, the affordable housing stock we actually have in the market. And then, of course, the other solution is as much new housing we build and as much even existing housing, how do we, you know, in some ways pull that out of the, the market, so to speak, and make sure that it's protected and, and affordable through, you know, nonprofit housing providers? I want to I want to pick up on that in just a second, because there's obviously different jurisdictions. I mean, they handle it in different ways across the country. My, you know, my brother, his wife, their two kids, 
live in in a in a wonderful uh, two bedroom apartment um, in an amazing spot right in downtown Vancouver, and the only way they can afford it is because my brother got that apartment twenty two years ago, and the landlord is 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 limited to an increase of about two percent a year. I think it is. It's capped, um, and you better believe that every year it's up by two percent, up by two percent. But there's no way that they'd be able to afford it if that wasn't the case. Whereas here in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, unless I'm missing something, I mean, it's basically you can charge what the market supports. And and I don't think that that's the worst either. I, I want to go there. And if you guys think I'm, 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 I lack empathy or I'm out of touch, I want you to say so in just a quick second. I do want to fit in a mention of some of the partners of ours that are making this conversation possible. But before I do, Yasmin, have I been pronouncing your name incorrectly the entire time? Luckily for you, you have not. Okay. Um, and I, just, I would have corrected you. Okay. So I, just, I just wanted to make sure we're going to talk. Hey, it's real talk. We got to get real. So we're, we're going to be talking about housing and I want to talk about government policy and, and, and pardon the phrase, but government meddling in the free market. Maybe not always a bad thing. The government's got to be involved when it's got to be involved. It's got to serve a purpose more with our IRPP Affordability Action Council members in just a quick second. And let me remind you, by the way, back on our September 15th episode of the show, it was a Friday as well. It was a real talk roundtable. We welcomed Canada's first federal housing advocate. That's Marie Chosehul. She was joined by Jennifer Keysmat, former chief planner for the city of Toronto. She's now working as a developer and former Calgary councillor Jeremy Farkas, who's doing a lot of uh, consulting on affordable housing. It was a wonderful real talk roundtable, specifically talking about Canada's housing crisis. You can find that in our YouTube or podcast archives. That was back on September 15th. This conversation's happening with the support of our friends at Kubi Renewable Energy. They're Western Canada's busiest solar in, uh, installer, and that means, of course, that their team is always expanding. It also means that they're in search right now of talented individuals to help Western Canada remain a leader on the renewable energy front. If you're seeking a new horizon in your electrical career, join Kubi and make an impact as a solar installer. At Kubi, your skills are cherished and they'll provide you, they promise you, comprehensive solar training for a seamless shift. Get ready to master solar system installations and shine with Kubi Renewable Energy. You can check out the careers link online at kubienergy.ca. You're going, well, that sounds great, but I'd rather get some schooling first. I think I want to level up my understanding of industry before I enter the job market. Well, Athabasca University wants to hear from you. They're Canada's open university. They're world-class accredited online degrees and courses designed so you can complete your education wherever and whenever it works for you. Check out the Get Started link at AthabascaU.ca to learn more about the AU Advantage, to figure out why literally tens of thousands of Canadians are trusting Athabasca University with their post-secondary journey. You can learn more about credit transfer, credit for experience, Indigenous studies and support, and of course, financial supports available as well. It's all at AthabascaU.ca. And a quick mention, our friends at Eden Landscaping, they're they're aware that right now it's the middle of November. You're not starting to think about breaking ground on landscaping projects. But if you want shovels in the ground in the spring, this is a perfect time to get in touch with them at landscapeedmonton.ca. Whatever your vision is, they'll execute it with precise attention to detail. They offer complete 
full-service landscaping, which means no matter what you're looking for, they've got the professionals to do it. Maybe you want edible garden boxes in your front yard. That's a cool new trend. Maybe you need excavation done to run a gas line out to your garage and get it heated. Maybe you're looking for a stonescape, a hardscape. Maybe you'd love a water feature or a retaining wall. Or maybe you're thinking big and it's time for an outdoor kitchen so you can entertain your family and friends like you've always dreamed of doing. Eden does it all. You can start the conversation today at landscapeedmonton.ca. We're hanging out with uh, Dr. Brennan Haley from Efficiency Canada, Sharice Berta from Toronto Metropolitan University, and Yasmin Abraham from Cambo Energy Group. Uh, Sharice, why don't we talk to you high level? I mean, you're the expert here on cities and city building. When it comes to policy around things like rent controls, when it, com- when it comes to the, the level of involvement, I mean, there's a big debacle in our home city right now of Edmonton. I'm not sure how familiar you are with shutting down the, the city center airport and, and, and this new uh, wonderful i sort of think of the simpsons when they were like monorail monorail and everybody was led to believe that this this wonderful new development was going to be perfect and it's just been sitting there as dirt for like 15 years and the common consensus in this city seems to be that municipal governments municipalities should not be in the business of developing that they should get that over to developers but then people say but developers are for profit and how's that supposed to address the affordability crisis can you help us sort this out Wow. Okay. So I would start by saying there's enough room um, for everybody to be involved because we um, need to build a lot of housing and we need to build housing throughout the spectrum. Everything from rent geared to income, rent controlled housing, all the way to home ownership. And so there's room there for private developers to do their thing in the private market. But there's also room there for um, for governments to get back into the game of building um, not-for-profit housing. So what not-for-profit housing is is simply housing that's built outside of the public, uh, outside of the private market. So it's not um, it doesn't have to face issues of things like rent um, going up. It doesn't have to face speculation and increase and, and price escalation. Because really, housing serves a lot of purposes. For some people, housing is a right. And for some people, housing is a real estate investment. But um, the problem with housing is a real estate investment, then um, prices escalate. That's how an investment works. So we need a certain percentage of our housing to be non-market housing. And that non-market housing really needs to target those Canadians who are most in need, who are the lowest income on the housing ladder who cannot afford um, market rent rent. Um, so I can get into more details about that, but I've, can I throw some stats at you? I, I love, love that. <laughs> okay. So just to put things like into context, um, about 20% of Canadian households cannot afford um, rent over a thousand dollars a month. And actually, the accurate number is $1,050 a month for rent and utilities. But right now, the average rent in Canada is twice that much at $2,200. So um, that's the average rent in Canada? In Canada. Now, it changes per city, of course. Like right. in Vancouver, a one bedroom is $2,800. In Calgary, it's $1,800. Mm. Um, but interestingly, 
Calgary has the best growing rents right now, 23% year over year from last year. Wow. And to put, put it another way, the average minimum wage in Alberta is $15 an hour. But the wage that's required to afford a one-bedroom rental in Edmonton and Calgary right now is about $21 per hour. So, and that's across the board in Canada. Almost every single municipality, except for three in Quebec, the average wage um, is not enough. The average minimum wage is not enough to pay for the average rental. And that's market rate. That's kind of like average cost of rental across the country or in these cities. So we have a problem if people who are wage earners um, who are making lower or minimum wage can't actually afford to pay rent. And that has an impact on the whole economy because that means that cities don't have essential workers that we need for our city to function. It means that businesses are shutting down because they can't keep a workforce that is paid minimum wage to do whatever they're doing for this business. And it also means, and we were talking about your your example of um, your relative, I can't remember who it was. Yeah, my brother, yeah. Your brother, he's like, I probably kisses the ground every day and goes, thank God for rent control and thank God that I'm in rent control. But there are a lot of cases, certainly in, in Toronto that I'm really familiar with, where people who are lower on the income ladder are in rent control. And let's suppose they've had a rent control apartment where they're paying 900 a month, which seems like crazy. But if you are of a lower income and you've had that apartment for a long time, it's like a small apartment or a studio apartment, and suddenly they're evicted because the landlord um, has used certain tools in order to um, move people out and the rent is attached to the tenant, not to the unit. So then if they get rid of the tenant, then they can jack up the rents for the unit as you described. But what happens to these individuals, they can't find another apartment for $900. Right. In fact, they're looking at $2,200. So I remember hearing a story, which is actually true, of this guy who was losing his job and he went out with his last paycheck and bought a tent and a sleeping bag because he figured he was going to be living in the park. So when people completely fall off the housing ladder and they're homeless, that affects us all as well, as we know, right? You know, um, that is a huge um, burden for our costs for shelter system or the emergency system, um, our healthcare system, and certainly to businesses who are trying to operate in city centers. Um, so we need. So one of the things that we're calling for in our first housing policy brief is that we build one million homes that are for the lowest income Canadians. So when I was describing before that we have twenty percent of Canadians who are uh, who aren't making enough to pay the average rent, um, we also have another twenty percent of Canadians of moderate income who can't afford rent and utilities over sixteen hundred a month. So really, like this is 40% of Canadians that can't pay the average rent. Um, and I, I'd love to get into a conversation about other other ends of the spectrum too, like um, you know what's going on with mortgage payments and people who are trying to own a home. But right now, this one um, sort of policy recommendation is to really target 
the lowest income Canadians, because this will have beneficial um, impacts on our broader economy. And and like, first of all, let me just say, first sentence is everything you've said is compelling and accurate and you're the expert, okay? Because I don't want to now be the yeah, but guy, because uh, you're the expert. But uh, another story I'm keeping an eye on right now that I think all of us are as well is there's a lot of people that stretched as far as they could to get into as much house as they could when borrowing was relatively cheap, borrowing was relatively affordable, and they signed, what, four, five-year mortgages, and now those are up for renewal, and instead of prime plus a half point, they're now looking at 9% instead of two. And I think that there's going to be a lot of people, unfortunately, that are listing their homes. That's what I'm expecting to see. But I want to ask the simple question to the panel. It would be amazing to build a million houses across Canada. And and you would argue that, that we need to, like it's not an option. It would be amazing if people weren't earning minimum wage. It would be amazing if minimum wage was $25 an hour. But to all of these you must ask the question, who's going to pay for it, right? Like you talk to a small business owner and they'll tell you that when Alberta and, 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 and Rachel Notley can make the compelling case and she did make the compelling case. And, and I don't think that, I think people are over it now, but I mean, there was a dramatic increase to Alberta's minimum wage when she was premier, probably because Alberta's minimum wage was completely insufficient for people to live. But you talk to business owners who saw that cost heaped up on a lot of other costs that were rising, and it was very difficult for a lot of small businesses. So, so who wants to take this one first? Who pays for it all? I can try that one. Let's go, Brandon. <laughs> well, I mean, I think uh, on the minimum wage, uh, I won't get into that too much, but you know that we need we need businesses to be productive enough so that they can pay adequate wages, and and there's a job for trying to ensure um you know that businesses have the support they need to 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 be productive um but in terms of housing i mean we have in this country spent a lot of money to build basic infrastructure which benefits everybody that includes you know the the highway system and other types of large transportation systems so um and the ideal entity to 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 pay a significant portion of that is is government because they can um, finance big long-term investments like that over a long period of time and they can see the multiple benefits and capture the multiple benefits of of those investments right it's not it's it's uh you know it's it's lower cost on your transportation systems to have more people living closer to where they work right it is lower health cost to have people live in inadequate housing interesting comment from denny in our live chat who says yeah but the nimby crowd the nimby crowd doesn't want affordable housing anywhere near their homes does there need to be like an attitude shift among the 35 40 million of us that call this country home I can talk about that one. There's so much to say on that one. <laughs> but I would um, I would say that affordable housing, um, I believe people people's um, people's opinions or feelings for that is starting to shift mm. because it, as you said earlier, it's starting to hit everybody. Like it used to be something on the margins, but now everybody is facing it. And one of the bright lights and this is recently a zoning change just happened in um, Edmonton. Uh, Ryan, are you familiar with 
um, allowing um, conversions of houses into multiple units. Yeah, and this has been quite contentious, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Like Edmonton's, and and it's kind of. Uh, to be honest with you, I'll, I'll hand the mic back immediately. I promise. Uh, what's yeah. been really interesting is that there have been some dramatic changes in 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 bylaws, etc. But the stories have really been flying under the radar. Like, I, I either you're totally into it, or you're totally pissed off, or if you're eighty five percent of the population, you have no idea what's even happening. Yeah, no, totally. You're right. Like this this battle has gone um, has 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 happened like in every city across Canada. And every municipality is in a different stage where they've passed the rules and now um, they're starting to build multiple units and Edmonton's at an early phase. But I think that there's so much potential. I mean, I, I was talking before about, you know, public housing or social housing for people in the greatest need, but we also need to house like families and uh, Canadians and young couples who want to buy a home and may not want to live in a condo, but they would be happy to live in a triplex or a duplex or a fourplex because that's actually cheaper housing. Um, because we have our biggest land area in our city is all, well, was zoned for like single detached houses. So you have all of this land area that is untapped potential resources to build housing or convert houses into like a duplex or a triplex rather than having to look to keep going further and further away from jobs and from where people want to live to build detached houses. And also we don't need to build more urban sprawl. We should be trying to intensify in our city where we already have schools and services and businesses and transit lines and all kinds of infrastructure. So, you know, the question is how, because, you know, you're going to piss off the neighbors if you build something really terrible and really ugly. Um, but you can also, you know, revitalize a neighborhood by working with really good architecture. And there's a there's a growing movement to um, look at how do we really get some pre-approved designs in place where you work with the city, where you work with the architectural community, and you come up with like sort of a handful of designs which are pre-approved which the homeowner then says, hey, I'm going to convert my house into this multiplex. Um, I'm going to rent out these suites. I'm going to get this pre-approved design. But we really need the programs to be effective, and we need the programs to make the numbers work for homeowners or they're not going to do it. In the chat, uh, Ben here says, what's a house? Uh, it's a pipe dream. It's like a unicorn. Ben says, my wife has been on the verge of giving up. Uh, for the last three to five years, she talks often about moving back home to the Philippines because we don't have a house. Uh, Kimberly says, if not for having housing, I would not have been able to go back to school uh, to get into a decent job and to become a taxpayer. Kimberly says, I'm happy to pay taxes to make life better for everybody. Uh, Yasmin, when we introduced you and, and, and we talked about uh, Empower Me, uh, you know, mm -hmm. which, which is obviously a group that you've launched as Canada's only energy and climate focused program designed for and delivered by members of underserved communities. What are the perspectives that you hear every day? Uh, what, are, what, what are the takes that are not receiving the amplification that they need? Is there like a common theme or a common message that you think may fly under the radar of, the, of everyday Canadians or Canadians that maybe aren't every single day thinking about how they're going to make their next financial obligation? Yeah, yeah. 
So Empower Me is a is a program that we launched 10 years ago, 11 years ago now, actually, um, really to fill this gap when it specifically when it comes to immigrants and newcomers in our country. We you know, we are one of the most diverse countries in the world. Um, so many immigrants come to our country, but, you know, there's multiple challenges for them to um, take advantage of programming, to understand their homes, uh, their energy bills. Yes. Thank you for showing our website. Um to answer your and so uh, I'll just talk a little bit about the model. So um, you know, instead of a top-down approach from the government or from people in that ivory tower that you talked about, um, putting programs into community, we center the solutions on the community. So we hire folks from those communities who know those communities better than I would, better than anybody would. And know how to, of course, speak the right language, but also know the subtleties, the culture, how to talk the talk, how to bring in examples from a home country. You made an example of uh, somebody in your chat from the Philippines, right? So like understanding how homes and energy and affordability works in the Philippines and helping the, those communities um, understand their Canadian homes. To answer your question about what's happening that I think is flying under the radar. And as we've been talking, I've been really thinking about the fact that people's homes are so personal. It's it's like the heart of your family and the heart of, of who you are and how you live your life. And there's a lot of shame and embarrassment when you cannot pay your bills, when your home is not looking the way you want it to do. To, whether there's a hole in the roof, whether your windows are broken, whether you can't heat your furnace. And so what we see when we are working in the communities is it's very hard for people to open up and admit that, uh, that they need help in this space. Um, in Alberta, in the work that we do, you know, the, the homes that we walk into, I can tell you, are really, are really shocking. Um, not, you know, we've walked into so many homes that, that we're, we're ready for it, but I think the average Canadian and definitely the average politician would be surprised at the state of homes that, that's happening in, you know, beautiful cities like Calgary and Edmonton, really the state of homes. Folks are living um, in really challenging situations, and it's not something that they really want to advertise, right? So it's it's a challenge. It's a very much a hidden a hidden issue, but once you start building the trust of the community, once you have those relationships, once the community really trusts you and invites you into their home, you really start to see some of the challenges and you're able to create solutions that address those needs. You know, we always say the people closest to the issues are also closest to the solutions. Mm. Um, so really centering those needs when we're designing solutions. I love that. Um, I remember, the, oh, go ahead, Brennan. I, I just I just wanted to follow up. So Gasman is just given a great example of how things are on the ground and how you can really solve people's problems with affordability and comfort. And our policy systems are not helping people like Yasmin deliver those um, solutions. So for instance, the the program that was announced just a couple of weeks ago is, for low income energy efficiency is solely focused on only heat pumps and heat pumps are great, but to solely focus on that is incredibly paternalistic <clears throat> and is not necessarily going to solve people's problems. We really need to it's be able so to, to yeah. like, you know, have work with people 
which could include insulation, could include like getting rid of mold, could include repairing that door. We need to be give the flexibility for people on the ground to really solve people's problems and help the climate. Could you describe what that program would look like in like two sentences? Is it that easy? Well, I think uh, good energy efficiency programs start with, you know, a government just saying, here are our objectives. We want to help people with affordability and we want to reduce emissions. And uh, people on the ground who are experts on designing these programs and working in communities, you tell us how you're going to meet those objectives, perhaps a little bit differently in like, you know, Edmonton instead of Halifax. But instead, what we've done, what policymakers have done is they've said, we will only support you know, heat pumps up to this level for 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 this very narrow group of people, and the more restrictions they put on um, those types of programs, the more difficult they are to actually implement on the ground. Yeah, so not to mention the, the objectives. Sorry to step on your toes. Not not to mention the fact that that politics weaves its way into it. I mean, there was a I don't have the the name in front of me, but there was there was a liberal MP that I think spoke probably in, in, in a little bit lazy language. Probably would take the comment back, but essentially implied that that as Atlantic Canadians or at least those with heat pumps were getting a break, uh, and and you know those on the prairies weren't. That you know maybe next time you're voting, maybe you should think of making sure that there's more liberal representatives. And and I'm just thinking that's not a productive comment, right? And and, and all it does. Really Really at a high level, and 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 I'm a middle of the road person. I'm not like a, a partisan, you know, banging the drum all the time. But but I have common sense, and I would suggest that comments like that imply that your number one priority is not reducing emissions and helping the climate. Your number one priority is preserving your political career and preserving your status in government. And, and I just don't think that's great. Um, before I run out of time with the three of you, I want to, We haven't talked much about transit. Um, and, and I remember, I'll remember this, uh, we did this, I did this radio show prior to this and we used to do this segment. Essentially we would do it like when a guest would cancel on short notice and we would open up the phones and say, what's your unpopular opinion? Uh, and it was great until it wasn't great. And a few people shared some very unpopular opinions live on the radio. And we decided to bury that segment where it belonged. My point is we had a former city councilor named Kim Crescell. And I respect her for doing this because I said, I said, Chriselle, I said, what is your unpopular opinion? And she said, building light rail in cities is a huge mistake. Uh, she believed that the that the future of rail uh, was bleak, and she believed that there was a. She's a big supporter of public transit, but she didn't think it was rail. And I heard that reiterated by another MP that I was talking to just this week off the record, so I won't name them. But he said, he said, I just think it's, he said, I think it's a huge mistake. He said, I'm, he said, we should be investing billions into public transit, but not rail. Uh, do the three of you have strong opinions on what public transit investments should look like and who's doing it right in Canada right now? I can start. <laughs> Take this hot potato. <laughs> um, I think it depends where you live. Mm. Really, transit needs to be built and oriented towards um, the city fabric, um, the densities, um, how the city is laid out. I mean, so for example, Calgary has a really great light rail system, but it was clearly built by engineers. I mean, it's, it sort of runs through the city like it's a subway, like you're standing on the subway platform at the library, right? So, um, you know, we really need to think about city building where um, transit is serving and uh, people 
a, a city for people. Um, but that's like a whole other long conversation about transit. One of the things I do say, see um, some cities getting right, like Calgary and um, Ottawa, is investing in bus rapid transit. And that is a lot cheaper. It's quicker to deploy. Um, it can be sort of oriented in a lot of different designs. But if we pair that with electrification, we have electric buses, and we have that technology now, we can reduce emissions. Um, we can reduce um, air pollution for um, people who want to take the bus, and it's just a lot friendlier. The one thing I would end with is um, if we're building transit, we need to put housing on that transit. We shouldn't be building transit to nowhere. We have to increase the intensification around transit so we get more homes, more people on transit, and that saves people's costs. Mm. I appreciate that. Um, we're up against the clock here and we respect your time, the three of you. So we always like to wrap up our roundtables with like a, you know, call it a closing statement for you. If there's anything that you've wanted to say, we haven't yet said, or, or, or maybe a question you want our audience members to be asking themselves as they're riding their bikes or walking their dogs, listening to this podcast uh, this weekend. Uh, Brandon, why don't you go first? Sure. I don't think we've grasped the opportunities that come with sustainable energy technologies to actually enhance affordability. So we really need to improve energy efficiency. And I don't just mean a small amount, I mean like a really big amount. And that means that paying a typical energy bill might not make any sense anymore. You might just pay a stable energy bill because the majority of your warmth is actually coming from insulation and not coming from you know what you're burning in your furnace. And then there's also opportunities for people to get paid you know, so if you own an electric car and, and you can charge that electric car at a certain time or you own a hot water tank and you can charge that hot water tank at a certain time, the utility should be paying you because that is a huge service to them. And so there's opportunities to actually deliver affordability in a completely different way with sustainable energy technologies that we have to uh, grasp and take the opportunity of. Hmm. Uh, Yasmin, we were just showing on the screen a, a piece that you contributed to. People can read it at thestar.com uh, out just last week. To get affordability right, we can't trade off Canadians' basic needs. And you reference a study, a sobering study, uh, released just a short time ago at the end of October by Food Banks Canada that shows that 30% of Canadians, let's say one in three Canadians, is coping right now with an inadequate standard of living. I mean, that enough is something to reflect on. But what would you leave us with today? Yeah, it is sobering. And I it is in our own backyards. And, and we talked about NIMBYs. Um, you know, it is here. You know, it's, it's right outside our house. It is our neighbors and it is our own communities. I think I would just reiterate my comment from earlier that folks on the ground and communities themselves have the solution really and are an important stakeholder of this. We, nobody's going to be able to address these challenges by themselves. Government can't do it by themselves. Communities can't do them by themselves. Corporations can't do them by themselves. We have to come together. And I think what we've seen is this siloing of solutions. Um, but I would really encourage us to talk to the folks that are closest to the problems, closest to the solutions to help inform our path forward. Last word uh, to you, Sharice, uh, bring us home here. What's your final statement? Oh, I don't know. I wish I had a real doozy. But <laughs> I would just say that it's really important that our um, different levels of government cooperate. 
we've seen kind of like a little bit of a fun fight go on around things like housing and other issues, government pricing. And I think the real opportunity exists in our levels of government collaborating because we have different things to bring to the table. And the federal government can bring to the table long-term low-cost financing. And municipal governments can bring to the table municipal land. Um, So you remove the cost of the land, you bring in low-cost financing, and suddenly you have the great conditions to build more affordable housing. I love it. People can check out uh, IRPP.org, uh, and you can even go more specifically, IRPP.org slash affordability. We'll put that in the show notes for the podcast and on YouTube. If you want to link to what these three and their colleagues are doing, this Affordability Action Council just rolled out by the Institute for Research on Public Policy. Uh, you can learn more about who's participating. It's an incredible roster, really, like these three that you've heard from, but but also experts in, in, in the youth perspective on climate. You've got economists, obviously, uh, experts in public health and mitigation and, uh, I mean, a lot of different things. You see Mike Moffat in there, a professor of public policy and business, uh, quite prominent on social media, transit experts and community business experts and the like a hell of a panel and we're so grateful that the three of you agreed to join us today giving us your valuable time and perspectives that's dr brennan haley from efficiency canada uh, sharice berta uh, from toronto metropolitan university and yasmin abraham from cambo energy group keep up the great work friends and thank you for this thanks for having having us you. you bet that was great I want to give a big thanks to you uh, as well, Johnny. Our, our live chat today was just uh, awesome and focused and mm-hmm. uh, people bringing their own perspectives to the table. I don't want to ignore some of the conversations we saw happening, um, in particular when, we, when, when minimum wage came up and we started talking about, because you could also talk about a universal basic income. And that, that seems to be maybe um, perceived as more of a progressive idea. And I think that it's an idea where some people say, well, it's an absolute no-brainer. Um, other people kind of question the, the viability of that or the appropriateness of that. And, and that's I mean, that to me seems like a perfect that's right in our wheelhouse conversations like that. But but I saw somebody say, well, hang on a second. You know, you, you, minimum wage is 15 if you bump it up to 25. And I'm not suggesting you go from 15 to 25. I think that would bury a lot of small businesses right away. Um, but I do think and, 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 and it probably needs to be a little bit more reflective of what economies look like, what cost of living looks like in different cities or different provinces across the country. Uh, there's always been differences in, in minimum wage, as negligible as they may be. But I saw some people saying, well, well ha- hang on, though. Uh, once you start bumping minimum wage up and then you got minimum wage earners making the same as workers with university degrees, uh, and then how do you motivate them? Everybody needs a raise. And part of me is going, I think there's a lot of people with university degrees that are making minimum wage right now. Mm-hmm. I don't think everybody's getting rich right now. I think it's quite the opposite. No. Yeah, I agree. You know? I agree. And it's hard because minimum wage, it just hasn't moved up the way it should be with with you know, cost of everything. Yeah. And now we're at this point where people are screaming for it to go up, like you said, too much to where it's going to hurt businesses and have the opposite effect that we want it to. Right. Yeah. And so, so you sit kind, there and you kind of a catch 22. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, there's like, I, I think of like the young parents, like the single mom or the single dad that's mm-hmm. working one or two jobs to try to make ends meet. And, 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 and you think of these kids that, that need, you know, like a good school lunch or they need to have appropriate shoes for the winter and these mm-hmm. parents are doing everything they can. And you go, and, and that's a compelling story. Think of the kids. Uh, and, and then how can you not support a minimum wage increase? But then you hear from 
the restaurant owner or the the retail shop owner that says we are you strapped. Know, pe- they're stra- like yeah. ba- you know they're they barely made it through the pandemic. And I and, know I know some of them. And 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 of they, course the first wage increase really hurt them. And then COVID came. Yeah. And it's like they're scared too. And they want to provide services and they want to give the, you know speaking specifically about restaurant owners. You know like food prices are up already. So how do you pay, you know, a cook or a waitress or a waiter or whoever more when every dish you're putting out is a dollar more or two dollars more? And then you got to it's 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 yeah. Anyways, Justin uh, sent us this and uh, I think it was on Wednesday. Uh, Describe it for the podcast. So we're looking at growth in real home prices uh, versus uh, disposable incomes and population. And on the left, you got the United States. So I, I figured in North North America, inflation's up. Housing prices are up. But especially in Canada, look at home prices compared to the way income rises. About 330, looks like 350% it's, kind of thing. It's but, so off the charts. Whereas in the States, yeah, incomes uh, went up and they actually have come down, which is horrible. And how home prices are up. They're going through the same problem. But look how exponentially. It's just an absolute. It's, it's a crisis it's, that's, that's the uh, the exponential increase. That's the hockey it's, stick, as it's statisticians crazy. would call it. Yeah. It, is, it is way off. I love this from uh, Sharon just says, great discussion. And uh, Sharon, the reason I bring that up in particular is because I wanted to recognize we did note your comment earlier in the show where Sharon said, you know, guys, it would be okay to have a coffee in the afternoon as well. Oh, we opened talking about Caesars. That's crazy talk. And, and Sharon's right. But, but crazy we, 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 we cut off our coffee around 930 in the morning here. I, I haven't been drinking much coffee lately. I've noticed that. Well, it tends to, I like fall asleep at like You're 1 o'clock. You're leaving me with full pots. It's not really giving you energy, right? It's just <laughs> get, tacking onto those receptors. So, you know, I try to. I try to I try to stay off the coffee now, but I did have one yesterday because I was I was in the depths. Yeah, I, I, I can I can low. always I can always <laughs> tell when you're in the trenches when when I'm topping up for the fourth cup and yeah. you say, "Hey, you 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 want to pour me a cup?" I go, "Oh, you're back on the coffee." Okay. <laughs> I don't want to rely on you it got, though. I've no. been taking like vitamins and trying to do other things to like keep the energy up because mm-hmm. yeah, I I want that to be like you know break in case of emergency kind of sure glass. i like that i like that you everybody everybody knows the one person that has the mug that says don't talk to me till i've had my first cup of coffee yeah <laughs> you know that is a thing yeah. so uh dr haley there brendan was uh, talking about and, and I'm, I'm really intrigued by that i mean that to me i feel like is is the uh the impetus on us and the jumping off point for an entirely different real talk roundtable where he says that these kind of like focused localized i like how, how he talked about uh what did what did he say it was like it was like a parental type government what was the word he used but he just said like the government to focus on something like like heat pumps in atlantic canada it's so pigeonholed it's it's curious and and obviously that's that's blown up in the face of trudeau uh in the last couple of weeks we've talked about on the show in a huge way where they essentially just said i mean like the whole premise of the carbon tax and i saw randy talking about this in our chat today as well if i if i remember correctly randy i think you're in the solar business aren't you i think so so randy's <laughs> a bit of a disciple on sustainables which is a good thing uh but 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 basically randy's saying well all these people bitching about the carbon tax i bet they're not bitching when they get their rebate well what has been the line from the government the whole time which is like you know people say it's not a tax it's a levy i kind of locked horns with jason kenny on that a few years ago if you were a chad loyalist you'll remember that conversation we got into like a 20 minute pissing match on whether or not it should be called a tax or a levy. I had so much fun with it. But at the end of the day, I don't know how many people actually took anything away from it. The government has said, well, you shouldn't, you know, don't worry about the carbon taxes. You're going to get your rebate. You're going to get your rebate. It really, I mean, in a way, it doesn't cost you anything because of the rebates. 
But then they come out and say, well, these Atlantic Canadians need a break. They need a break. And so we're lifting the carbon tax on this. And everybody's going, wait a second. The full, the whole foundation that you poured, the entire, pre- the entire justification, the government's messaging over the last five years has been this. And now you're acknowledging or implying or stating that that's not the case, that it's not revenue neutral for households. And it's created a real problem for the liberals on this carbon tax. It could mean the death of the carbon tax. And for a government who's, I mean, what's Justin Trudeau's probably biggest legacy? Like, would you say? Like, what's what's he most known for over the last, I don't know, eight years? Marijuana legalization. Uh, maybe that. And then the carbon tax. Yeah. I, I, if, <laughs> if you're not a cannabis user, though, you don't even really care about that. I mean, I would say the carbon tax has been the biggest thing. And so if, it has, at, yeah. at the end of the day, they've nailed their feet to the floor on this. This is a real political problem. So I appreciated Brandon getting into this and saying the government needs to do something that's that's sort of more uh, or let's say less paternalistic, I think was the word that he used, and a little bit more focused on the achieved outcome, which is lower emissions, less energy, right? A smaller footprint. And he talked about mold mitigation. And at that moment, the entrepreneurial side of my brain said, that's when we mention complete care restoration that's right because you know them for the work that they've done helping get people back on their feet after fires and floods i mean just the absolute nightmares but did you know that they have trained experts that specialize in mold and asbestos removal that's right they're trained specifically for this they can assist in sampling and analyzing building materials to ensure that hazardous substances are properly addressed the safety of you and your family as well as their team is of utmost importance. That's why whether or not you know that mold is there, you may not know that asbestos is there. I mean, heck, every once in a while, you've got the DIY crew, maybe you're one of them, and you put that first sledgehammer through the drywall, and all of a sudden you discover you got a bigger problem than you thought. That's when you're going to want to call Complete Care Restoration. Leave it to the experts that focus on making every project a fulfilling experience for them and their customers. You can find them online at CompleteCareRestoration.ca. And for those of you that are going to be out grocery shopping this weekend, we wanted to remind you that it's a big day at Friesen Brothers. That's right, because you know what? Their sourdough starter is celebrating the birthday, the eighth birthday. That's right. Happy birthday, Charlie. Charlie's birthday is today, November 17th. And if you check out Friesen.com, you can find details on what that celebration is going to look like. Happy birthday, bro. Happy birthday, bro. <laughs> Charlie. <laughs> we were always wondering, is Charlie male or female? I don't know why we need to impose that on, but I did notice in the script that Friesen Brothers sent us, they said Charlie is celebrating his birthday. So the mystery is solved. Either everybody, way. Everybody can rest easy. Either way, and I don't know if this is appropriate. They're delicious. Johnny, <laughs> don't let whether or not something is inappropriate stop you from sharing it on the show. Charlie's birthday means that everybody that heads into a Friesen Brothers on today, that's this Friday, November 17th, if you're listening to it, is going to receive... A special treat. That's the Friesen Brothers Cinnamon Spread. Free with every loaf of sourdough that you pick up. 16 locations across the province. Friesen Brothers is Alberta-grown and Alberta-owned. That cinnamon spread. Oh, gosh. That cinnamon spread. We went there two nights ago. It's one of life's great joys. We're always like, yeah, we'll just go there and we'll just get a pizza. Or we'll just go and get this. And then we get the cart and we're walking around. Oh, that's your... Everything's... I got half a rhubarb pie in the... (laughs) 
in the car. You, you and your half pies, She's man. She's like, I thought we came for a pizza. Can yeah, I encourage you to? Can, can I encourage you to start buying full pies and just bring the other half into work? Well, here's so that the you thing. and I could crush it, maybe. And, and I don't know if I want to disclose this because okay. it may, it may, you guys may turn on my partner. Okay. She doesn't like pie. Well, that's 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 okay. Isn't that crazy? It's, she's she. I know she likes cupcakes. She loves sweets of all kinds. Yeah. But pie just isn't her thing. No, like, I think I so. Think like that... I buy a half pie, and I'll be like, "You want a piece?" No, I'm like, "Who says?" So who you says already know to pie. But you already know. Somebody she's offers say me no. pie. I'm like, "Yeah." Like but, if I'm not hungry, put it in my backpack. I don't, I like you know, that. take it home. Oh, but she's yeah, she's that's perfectly okay. Plenty yeah. of different sweet treats. Including the sourdough cinnamon buns. This is turning into like a five-minute ad for Friesen Brothers. What can we say? We're enthusiastic about it. Now, you know there's a tradition that we get into every Friday. We're going to do that in just a second. Uh, presented by our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, the flamethrower. That's coming up in just a second. But first, this isn't a flamethrower, but I wanted to read this email. Yesterday, uh, a wonderful conversation with Senator Paula Simons first. And then Tasha Carradine, uh, political analyst, lawyer, author. You know Tasha, a former radio colleague of mine. Uh, by the way, apologies. For those of you that were looking for the episode yesterday on YouTube and it had disappeared mysteriously for several hours, uh, it was a copyright thing. We won't get into the weeds and bore you with it, but it is back mm. up on our YouTube channel. You can find yesterday's episode with those two. Uh, Tasha was talking about a whole bunch of stuff, including the fact that Gen Z, the the now and next generation, so to speak, are, are, are leaders of today and tomorrow. Uh, while we promised that we would never forget the Holocaust, Gen Z has nothing to remember. Um, and Tasha's message struck a chord uh, with uh, with. Um, Ooh, I just noticed the last line in the email says, if you read this, please change my name. So we're going to say it's from Charlie. How's that? I've got sourdough on nice the brain. catch. Yeah, thanks. Hey, uh, real talkers, make sure if you don't want us using your real name, put that in the first line of the email, not the last. But this one from Charlie, who says Jespo and Johnny on the spot. Uh, what Tasha Carradine said on your show Thursday is exactly what's being lost in the conversation today. The history of what's happened uh, since Israel's left Gaza since 2005 when Hamas has taken over the Gaza Strip is being lost with Hamas killing the opposition uh, Palestinian Authority Fatah. They have shown that they do not care about democracy. They only care about control and or destroying the Jews. And for those that think Israel is wanting to go in and kill Palestinians, that's not based in any reality. Uh, if they want to kill those in Gaza and the West Bank indiscriminately, they could do so the world over. The stated objective on this is a war on Hamas, not a war on Palestinians, a war on Gaza, on the West Bank, on Arabs, on Muslims, but on Hamas, says Charlie. It's unfortunate sad and and it shows that Hamas are cowards will not fight out in the open against the IDF but use the population they claim to defend as human shields using schools mosques hospitals and all other places that people would use as a safe haven under international conventions of war but they don't they're cowards for using these places that get bombed because they do not appreciate anything other than mass chaos the destruction of land and the destruction of life for those that think a ceasefire would work uh, is bizarre because how would Israel, the only Jewish state, reason with Hamas, who has stated their sole objective is to destroy Jews and the Jewish state? Charlie says, thank you for having Tasha on. as She expressed everything that's been going through my mind since October 7th. That from Charlie, and we appreciate that. I also got a note from Mitzi, who had been watching our show on Adam Johnson's tragic death mm -hmm. and the the there have been no charges laid yet but no. uh the the other player involved in this matt petgrave arrested by british police uh on suspicion of manslaughter 
And I posted uh, after talking with Bruce Arthur uh, from the Toronto Star, and that was a great episode earlier this week. You can catch it uh, if you like. Uh, Mitzi wrote in and said, uh, and I know her personally, and so we had a we had a back and forth. And she said, "Well, you know, I said Bruce Arthur is not sure that that manslaughter charges would be warranted. I feel like I'm inclined to agree. Um, I know that other." Hockey experts have disagreed. I mean, Jeremy Roenick, Jr., the great American player, uh, has gone on the record recently saying that he believes that Petgrave should be charged in the death of Adam Johnson. And so Mitch Avery as well. Is that right? Was out on a podcast saying he, you know, he doesn't. and, And I think we're both in the same boat. Like he didn't wake up that morning deciding to kill someone, but he made a very bad decision in that moment which he thinks he should have to answer for basically but yeah it's it's and i think you can it's argue- so hard to what bruce said you, how do you get inside someone's brain you can't and especially someone's brain when you make a decision in less than a second so was he trying to get in his lane probably most likely but who knows how his leg came up or what happened. It, it could have, like, things are happening so fast. Well, and to state the obvious, in hockey, guys are trying to hurt each other. That doesn't mean they're trying to kill each other. Not at all. There's a huge difference. You're trying to hurt a guy, and, like, you can't tell me that Scott Stevens back in the day, mm-hmm. or you can't tell me that Jacob Truba, the great hitter, you know, the captain of the New York Rangers, isn't trying to take someone out of the game when he hits him with his famous hip check. He is but he's not trying to end his career and he's not yeah, trying to kill him. You're not and there's trying a to, big difference. You're not trying to break someone's bone. I would say there's three things you're trying to do. Number one, you're trying to knock the wind out of someone, like give them yeah. a, whoa, so they, they're down for a few seconds. And yeah, you're trying to give them a, a few bumps and bruises so that they, they think, you know, Charlie Horse, whatever. But no one's trying to, you know, snap someone's bones. No one's in trying half. to concuss no anybody. Trying, no, Nobody's no one's trying, trying to, to send anyone to the hospital. Of course not. But how can it not happen when you're at that high speed? ramming into someone right so, so so bruce gets into this and i really appreciated his perspective and and you can find that um that was on uh, wednesday's episode right john of this week a couple of episodes ago and you can find it of course wherever you get your shows uh, but mitzi writes into me and, and she says well isn't manslaughter after i said that i, I don't believe that charges are warranted here and it's okay if you disagree she says well hang on isn't manslaughter simply when you kill someone accidentally and i said well yeah but there's the question of whether or not charges are warranted I said, especially in sports, like if a football player is paralyzed during a tackle, should the other player be charged? Mm -hmm. I said, probably not. There's a gray area. I said, it's gruesome and it's obviously so tragic. And she says, well, I know she said it's crazy, but if somebody's killed at the hands of someone else, I feel like they have to call it something like wrong, wrongful death sounds more friendly. But Mm -hmm. if I accidentally ran over somebody because they ran out into the road, I think it could be manslaughter. It's such an interesting conversation. She said it may have been a wild accident. I've seen the video and it's a touchy call. They obviously think something was off. Like like maybe he was trying to oversell the fall. And I said, yeah, but you know, we're watching it in super slow-mo as well. But of course it happens in the fraction of a second. And I loved what she said here. She said, when I first heard about it, I never dreamed that it would happen how it did. It's such a bizarre accident. Uh, Mitzi says, I for sure don't think that he should go to jail but I don't know how it should be handled. Somebody lost their loved one. She said, mm-hmm. if, if it was my brother that died, I would want justice. But if it was my brother that did it, I would want compassion. 100%. It definitely is like a one in a million 
accident that happened here. But here's so in in response to her example, you know, when you're driving a car and you're going too fast and you hit someone, yeah. But let's say you're driving a NASCAR in a race and you pin someone against the wall and that car lights on fire and the person burns to death. Yes. It's a totally different I mean, you're trying to win a race. Like this is within the confines of a sport where like you said, you're trying to you're rewarded by how much you punish your opponent, right? So, I'm not sure like I'm saying, like Sean Avery said, this guy didn't wake up in the morning and think I'm going to go on the ice and murder someone. He said, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to do my job. And what's my job? He, he clearly is. He's one of those instigators. He's one of those guys who plays rough tumble to the edge, to the line. Uh, I guarantee you one thing though, this guy's life is over mentally. And like, like if, he, if you think this guy's gonna, if he doesn't go to jail, that he's going to get back on the ice, that he's going to go home and have beers with his friends and, and be happy like this is going to be mental anguish for the rest of his life. He's going to be replaying this in his head. He's going to be known for this. He his entire life, wherever he goes. So I think the best thing you said yesterday was just, you know, it's like a tragedy on top of tra- it's a tragedy sandwich is what it is. It's just there's no way that this is going to end up. Like you said, if he goes to jail, like how uh, Adam Johnson's wife or his loved ones, I don't think they're going to be happy. This guy's goes to goes to jail. Like, I, I don't I, I don't think that's what's going to give them peace. You I know? think I think you want accountability. I think that right now I'm certainly not speaking for anybody, but but you're 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 shattered. Uh, there's probably not the appropriate you know, there's not adequate words for it. You're you're heartbroken. You're shattered. You're destroyed. You're angry. There's all the feelings that come with losing somebody unjustly. And so suddenly 29 years of age in the middle of a hockey game mm-hmm. um, of note. I mean, you know, TSN rep- reporting this and they had spoken with um, Carrie Kaplan. Now, take this for what it's worth. Uh, but Carrie Kaplan is Matt Petgrave's uh, former GM uh, with the Brampton Beast of the East Coast Hockey League of the ECHL. And uh, TSN had reported that Kerry Kaplan had had jumped to Matt Petgrave's defense or come to his defense, I should say, in the wake of Adam Johnson's death. So it's just, I mean, th- there's a lot. I know that many of you may have strong opinions on this. I, 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 I would say the majority of people, and I consider our friend group, my friend group, to be pretty uh, involved and invested and interested in sports. So it's people that watch a lot of sports. They've seen a lot of sports. There Very few of them have strong feelings about this, right? Very few are saying he should absolutely not face charges or he absolutely should. Mm-hmm. I feel like the majority of people that I've talked to about casually about this are saying it's horrific, it's a tragedy, and we don't know what the outcome should be. That seems like the average person. And I, th- I think those people are smart. I think any I think anyone who's put on a pair of skates and played played a hockey, whether it's I don't care at what level, knows that just mistakes happen. You go too fast, things happen, you get off balance, and these guys playing at these high speeds, it just I don't see in my head any way that like you said yesterday, that a prosecutor could get up and prove that this guy yeah. wanted to get his neck with his skate. And and that's what you'd have to prove to to, to, you know what I mean? It would, you would have to prove that he was trying to get his leg up high enough to hit him in the neck to cause injury to his neck. And I just I just don't see that happening. And so I think it's going to be a farce. But I do think like years from now, you know, when we finally hear from his family, because that's the other thing. We're not hearing a word from Matt. No, we're not hearing a word from the family. Yeah. The only interviews we've seen are from like GMs, former coaches and and, and the fans. So I think I think years from now, maybe we'll hear from the family and whoever. And I'm sure, like I said, I don't think anyone finds relief yeah. no matter what the outcome is. Pet, Pet Graves 
lawyers would obviously be telling him to not make any comment right now as the investigation continues. Uh, So yeah, it's just sad all around. Um, You can let us know what you think about this. Obviously, that's one of the million stories that we'll continue to cover as as that develops. And uh, if there's an angle on this that you feel like we're ignoring, uh, or maybe something that you haven't heard on the show, we'd love to hear from you anytime you can find us. And we encourage you to follow us on on Twitter, on Instagram, and on TikTok at RealTalkRJ. Of course, you can email us as well at talk at ryanjesperson.com. Every Friday, courtesy of our friends at the Dairy Queens, the DQs of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, that's Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road, we roll out the red carpet and give you a chance to bring the heat to blow off a little steam. We want to hear from you. That's right. We want you to bring your hot takes because it's the flamethrower presented by the DQs of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. And this one, uh, well, this is Lance who's kicking a hornet's nest. Lance writes in from the Paw, Manitoba. Shout out to the Paw. Lance says, I've just discovered Real Talk this month and I've caught every episode since. Lance, we love it. He says, but let me get this straight. Alberta wants its own pension plan. Seriously? He says, uh, these are my words. These are Lance's words, not mine. Okay, Lance's words not mine. He says, I can just picture it now. A bunch of rag pigs managing your retirement savings, wearing hard hats and sipping on Tim's. Like, come on, Alberta. You want to break away from the big, bad national pension plan and create your own? What is this, like some sort of like Wild West fantasy? You're going to invest in oil and rodeo exclusively? I can already see the promo materials. Invest with us and you'll retire in a cozy log cabin with a view of the Rockies surrounded by friendly bears who are managing your 401k. But hey, who needs diversification when you can have a pension plan as rugged and independent as Alberta itself. Good luck with that, my fellow Canadians. I'll stick to my national pension plan and leave those Wild West financial adventures to you. Yeehaw, or whatever. That from Lance. Lance, we say Yahoo, but uh, but I digress. This from Gerald, who says, Jespo, on healthcare and privatization, you brought up the fact a few shows ago that sometimes in life things aren't fair, and you're not wrong. Remember I said that not everybody eats the same meals, not mm-hmm. everybody wears the same clothes, not yeah. everybody lives in the same houses, mm-hmm. and then we laughed that politicians could never get away with saying that? Well, <laughs> Gerald says, we do have acts, though, and laws that guarantee access to healthcare for everybody, and the issue with two-tier healthcare is that we presently have a shortage in doctors and nurses and services nationwide. So you tell me, Jespo, how privatization will fix that. I wouldn't try, Gerald. He says, how will it create more doctors? Like, not long-term, but like today, right now. If there truly was a believable scenario where private for-pay healthcare created better high-quality public healthcare, then have at it, but I don't see it. What I'd love to hear is people and companies who want to move in a way that give us a commitment to deliver top-tier public health care first. Then they can skim off the top, but the system they create first is a benchmark that is not allowed to lag. As for private delivery in the public system, it can work, but there's a lot of examples of it costing a whole lot more. Just look at the private nurses that Ontario uses, all because the province didn't want to bargain. And by the way, one last thing you mentioned, Danielle Smith being less adversarial with doctors. Sure, because the last guy gutted their pay. So now she's playing nice and giving them half of it back? Come on! That from Gerald. What about this one from Kyle, who says, Jess, well, I'll start by saying you need to start sharing more details why people like me support the Alberta pension plan. Otherwise, it makes it seem like your hate for the APP is leaking into your coverage of it. First of all, Kyle, I don't hate an APP because there is no APP. There's nothing to hate 
I'm just saying you don't have any information to form your opinion. You say you support the APP, but how and why? You don't even know how much money you're getting. They're telling you you're going to pay less into it and take more out of it, but you don't know. You wouldn't counsel your friend to leave his family for the Russian bride on the internet that he's never met. You wouldn't counsel your buddy to leave his job for the promise of a new employment that hasn't come with a contract, that there's no stated salary or benefits. It would be a bad idea until you had the facts, right? But let's get to your email. Kyle says there's a federal court ruling regarding trading in TFSA accounts. And don't worry, guys, it's not boring. Kyle actually gets to the point on this. He says it alarms me. He says this is the financial flamethrower. He says basically the ruling creates and allows six arbitrary discretionary factors that could rule anybody's TFSA as a business, making it taxable. It could depend if their frequency of trades or how long you hold the stock, if you have knowledge of the security market, if you have an account outside of a TFSA, if you research the market too much before making the trade, or if your stock trades are speculative instead of long-term dividend holdings. He says this ruling is dangerous and the federal government's got to patch this hole because it makes every Canadian vulnerable to losing their TFSA account status. It potentially makes all managed TFSA's illegal. He says we don't tax casino winnings from people. We don't tax settlements. Why should something as speculative as a casino game be taxed if it's used in a tax-free account? Kyle says, I feel like this isn't being talked enough about, and I hope you can provide some insight. That from Kyle. Buddy, I know where my expertise starts and stops, and it's not on TFSAs, but I appreciate you putting that on our radar. Sounds like fodder for a future show. And finally, this from Judy, who says, Ryan, I know that everything that's going on in the world makes this at the bottom of the list with regards to importance but something happened this week for the hundredth time and it just prompted me to write in judy's making her flamethrower debut what's up with people who don't wave in traffic she says like are we living in a society devoid of basic human decency you're driving a giant metal box on wheels and i have the audacity to acknowledge your existence with a simple wave and what do i get in return nothing nada zilch she says it's like some people have completely forgotten the unwritten rule of the road you know like if somebody lets you merge or gives you the right of way maybe acknowledge their existence for a split second she says i don't care if you're having a bad day i don't care if you're in a rush a wave takes what like half a second it's not going to ruin your life but apparently for some folks it's an insurmountable task so to all you non-waivers out there says judy do us a favor one put down your phone two take your hand off the horn and three maybe just acknowledge the fact that we're all in this traffic mess together judy we love it judy sent us an email like the rest of our flamethrowers today to talk at ryanjesperson.com the flamethrower is proudly presented by the family-owned DQs of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. John Hicks recommends the Dairy-Free Dilly Bars. Thanks for being a part of Real Talk this week. We're back at it Monday, and we'll see you then. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, executive producer Josh Dunford, Technical producer, John Hicks. General manager, Katie Cook-Chivers. Account coordinator, Lawrence Durlego. Human resources, Lena Shepard. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Perry Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Dubetti, Ahmed Ali, Randy Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. 
Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.